You see these animals on landscape and you think they belong. And it is just so clear that this is where they have all, this is where they were for millions of years and, and they deserve a home on the Northern Great Plains. Welcome to Rewilding the World with Ben Goldsmith. I am a rewilding enthusiast and activist from Britain, and I'm making this podcast to hear about some of the most exciting, most dramatic rewilding projects around the world. It's easy to feel gloomy. Um, We face big challenges. The climate science gets ever more frightening, and we lose more and more nature with every passing year. Here in Britain, one of the most nature-depleted countries on Earth, Uh, Very little remains. Nature is quite literally blinking out all around us. But the good news is that nature recovers dramatically and fast. Nature is extraordinarily powerful in healing itself if we give it the chance. And the other good news is that there are people out there doing it at scale all over the place, making nature better and better than it's been in many cases for centuries. So the point of this podcast series is to find those people, talk to them, And hear these stories which are not told broadly enough. Not enough people hear these exciting things that are happening. And our first guest for our first podcast is Alison Fox from the American Prairie Reserve. Alison's story is really staggering. The great American prairies were once one of the most vast grassland ecosystems in the world. We've all seen images and heard stories of the great herds of bison and so on. A lot of that is now gone, if not all of it. And Allison's project, the American Prairie Reserve, is seeking to pull off a dramatic and huge restoration in northern Montana. Allison, thank you so much for being my first podcast guest. Thank you, Ben. I'm honored to be the first. Allison, I think a good place to start would be for you to describe how the great prairie landscapes of northern Montana might once have been. I'm happy to do that. And I think the the one single phrase that describes this the best is an American Serengeti. You immediately get a visual. And where we're lucky here is that starting in the early 1800s, we got um, incredible written accounts of what this landscape was like, and then later some visual accounts as well. And then, of course, we have the stories passed down from indigenous peoples. And so what did the Great Plains look like? It was um, a landscape characterized by tens of thousands, millions of ungulates. Um, of course, the American bison, pronghorn, elk, deer. Uh, we had wolves and grizzly bears on the Great Plains. We had hundreds of species of grassland birds. And starting with uh, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, uh, to Carl Bodmer, to George Catlin, to the cowboy artist Charlie Russell, we have these images, both visual and written accounts of um, this landscape of plenty. And of course, um, these indigenous communities that were living alongside this, this wildlife for millennia. I read once that the settlers were able to fill an entire wagon with prairie chicken eggs in an afternoon. Such was the scale of the abundance. So what's left after the Europeans had their way and used the destruction of the bison as a way really of destroying the Native Americans of the plains and converted great swathes of it to arable agriculture and cattle pasture? How much of that remains? Is there any functional prairie grassland remaining in the United States today? 
There is, there is. And I want to be clear that American Prairie and, and the work that we've done in the last 20 years is is building on conservation successes that have occurred um, on the Great Plains for, for decades before we arrived. Um, there are large swaths of native untilled prairie left in the Great Plains, and that is an incredible foundation for the conservation work. And so uh, one of the things that's really important to note is that intact grasslands is like old growth forest. The vast majority of prairie plants, their root systems are underground. And so when you tell that native prairie, it is incredibly difficult and expensive to get it back. But there are areas, including the one in which we work in central Montana, where 90 plus percent of the prairie is is native prairie, never been plowed and um, in relatively good shape as well. So that foundation um, is, is there. Uh, in terms of the wildlife species, the latter half of the 19th century represented, you know, as you alluded to, a loss of millions of animals, um, from prairie dogs to bison, so these keystone species, beaver, the ungulates. Um, and then by the early 1900s, uh, the top three carnivores were all gone. Bison were basically gone from this landscape. But starting in about the, you know, maybe 1950s, the bighorn sheep was reintroduced to our region. The elk was reintroduced to our region. Um, and then the, the tribal communities have led introduction efforts of, of bison, of black-footed ferrets, of most recently swift fox. So none of these animals exist in the abundance they once were. And some of these species are still missing, but there is a trajectory here of bringing this wildlife back from, from the brink. And it was, it was certainly at the brink. Scientists are starting to understand the role of keystone species the reference from, from medieval architecture of the keystone in the arch of a bridge, a retreating army could pull the stone out and the arch would collapse. Um, in ecosystems, keystone species are understood to have a disproportionately important role in holding everything together. And in the American prairie, it's undoubtedly the iconic bison, which is the keystone, the center of everything. How many remain um, and, and where are they? Across the continent, there are about uh, just shy of 400,000 bison, but many, the vast majority of those are in production herds. Um, in terms of conservation herds, there are about 30,000 bison in conservation herds, and so they are considered a, a near-threatened species. Um, and they are mostly held by the, the government, the Department of Interior, and national parks and other protected areas, um, and by tribes and by some conservation organizations, um, including our own. So this is one of the real uh, bright spots of our work is that the bison conservation community is really integrated and there's a concerted effort to exchange animals to um, make sure that the five primary genetic strains left are, are represented in as many herds as possible. So American Prairie's bison story began in 2005. And I still sometimes shake my head in, in wonder and awe and appreciation that the founders of this project, including my predecessor, Sean Garrity, had that foresight. We bought our first property in 2004, and by 2005, we had hooves on the ground, which um, is just an incredible proof point because of the role of bison as a keystone species. So we have between seven and 800 bison 
on our properties now. And we collaborate with a lot of other conservation organizations and tribal communities. We have now donated more than uh, 500 bison to different conservation herds, um, primarily tribal herds, and have given bison to um, about half of the recognized tribes in the state of Montana. So as we acquire uh, access to more uh, grass. We expand our herds, but we also, um, when we have excess bison, uh, we can contribute to that broader bison conservation story in North America. I can't tell you how much I look forward to your emails. They pop into my inbox and there's quite often iconic videos and, and photographs of those bison and that herd expanding. Um, so tell us what the origin of the American Prairie Reserve project is and wh- whose idea was it? Like, how, how did this all start? Yeah, it has its I like to say it has its historic origin and then its modern day origin. So I'll start with this, its historic origin. We talked about the artists and the writers who came up the Missouri River in the early 1800s and saw these incredible herds and were just blown away by the, the amount of wildlife they saw. And one of those was the American painter George Catlin. In the late 1830s, he actually wrote um, a passage um, where he pretended that he was being lifted up on a pair of imaginary wings and below him he saw um, just boundless herds of buffalo and he actually writes it it calls for the establishment of a nation's park for man and beast so here we were in the 1830s and we had um, someone of the prominence of George Catlin who um, revered the the tribal communities that he was interacting with revered the, the wildlife and saying wait a minute, this should be a nation's park. And, you know, for a lot of reasons that didn't happen. America um, has this incredible conservation legacy, this incredible park building legacy, starting with the establishment of Yellowstone National Park in, in 1872, the the country's first and the world's first national park. But we never set aside a large swath of our grasslands in any type of permanent protection. And so it was really at the turn of the millennia, it be like, kind of late 1990s, that a number of conservation organizations were looking at temperate grasslands worldwide. And temperate grasslands are the least protected terrestrial biome, less than 5% or in any type of permanent protection. And they were looking at what remained in the Northern Great Plains, which is the the, the temperate grasslands on this continent. And um, a number of them, these groups kind of pointed to this particular area where we work in Montana and the conditions that would make large-scale conservation possible. Those conditions being an abundance of public land, those conditions being native prairie, those conditions being that rich wildlife history and it was really it was World Wildlife Fund, our um, sort of parent organization, that came up with the model. They founded American Prairie as a separate five hundred one c three nonprofit organization land trust to acquire private lands in order to link together these vast swaths of existing public lands. And so American Prairie was founded uh, 21 years ago in 2001 um, as an independent entity, working really closely with World Wildlife Fund in those early years to eventually hold title to hundreds of thousands of acres of private land that that links together millions of acres of public land for eventually a complete ecosystem of about 5,000 square miles or 3.2 million acres of grassland steppe, of breaks, of ponderosa pine country, of all these, um, of this big ecosystem that supports the vast array of of wildlife. The biggest rewilding project that not enough people have heard about. 
How far have you got so far? How much land has American Prairie Reserve already acquired and, and, and weaved together? Yeah. So uh, easiest way to break this down is of that three million acre vision, part of that vision is an existing million acre wildlife refuge. So the Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge is um, along the Missouri River, along a, um, a reservoir of the Missouri River, and it is river and river bottom and these steep breaks up onto the prairie and American prairie is acquiring lands on either side of this existing wildlife refuge. So our goal is to stitch together this this 2 million acres. And we have now, through 35 transactions, acquired 454,000 acres of land. Those That's deeded land and leased land. Um, so, you know, you can, you can do the math there, but about 20% of the way towards our goal and, you know, about halfway th- towards our goal. If you, if you start, if you count that the Charlie Russell um, as the, that, that starting point. And, and those ranches generally come with entitlements to graze livestock on adjacent public lands managed by the Federal Bureau of Land Management. A bit like common land here in Britain, you can buy a farm on Dartmoor, Exmoor, one of the national parks, and it comes with a swathe of, of ancient grazing rights on, on what they call common land. And there's been a bit of a kerfuffle I've seen in some of the press, and I look up um, American Prairie Reserve, latest news on Google, um, with the governor of Montana and with the attorney general and with maybe the U.S. Cattlemen's Association around the permission you've received from the BLM to graze bison instead of domestic cattle on, on your entitlements. What's that about and how are you handling that controversy? Yeah, so when American Prairie purchases um, a property, we are often leasing that property back to the former owner, we're leasing to a neighbor. And so we have cows on on many of our properties. But um, our goal over time is to have um, bison as the predominant grazer on uh, both our, our deeded property and the leases associated with those deeded properties. And so in order to do that, we have to apply for um, a change of use permit um, to change the grazer from, from cows to bison on our various properties. And, you know, bison are are a feared animal in this country. Um, they are a national animal. They're also revered. I mean, revered for for their majesty, revered for the the, the work that they do as an ecosystem engineer, or keystone species. Uh, but they're also feared. They're feared um, for disease reasons. They're feared because people think that they're um, not um, manageable. Um, and so we have faced opposition to expansion of our grazing. And, um, you know, I'm not going to speak to what is the, you know, the motivation of the attorney general, the governor, but what I will say is that the Bureau of Land Management went through an extensive process, a multi-year process to gather public input through many different forms and uh, evaluate this change of use request. And that has come out thus far in in, in our favor. Um, and what we have proven on the ground is that we our good bison managers, where uh, we have a world-class bison management operation. Our bison are fenced. They stay within their fences. We have a disease management protocols. Um, and we strive to be a good neighbor. We strive to work really closely to make sure that our livestock are not impacting our neighbors as our neighbors do do for us. And so uh, we are continuing to um, expand our, our bison program and also um, just to be really transparent and open um, about how we manage 
manage our bison and invite people out to come and see it. We just two weeks ago um, handled um, about uh, about a hundred bison, and we are because we're moving bison from one property to another. We were also um, providing bison to some other conservation herds, and we were doing a lot of disease testing and also putting GPS collars and um, ear tags on our bison that help us track them. And we put out lots and lots of invitations to neighbors, to the agencies we work with saying, hey, come see this incredible operation where we, our staff, you know, probably 30 people come together to do low stress handling on the bison to process these animals, to get the blood samples, to sort them. Um, it is a, it's like an orchestra. It's, um, I'm really, really proud of our team and, and how they handle that. And we had 15 people come show up, um, neighbors, representatives from the local um, conservation district, students from the Aani Nakota College. The Aani and Nakota um, community is the, the closest um, indigenous community to us, and we have great relationships there. So we want people to see that what good bison managers we are and um, and to see these animals on the landscape. And you see these animals on the landscape, and you think they belong. And it is just so clear that this is where they have all, this is where they were for millions of years and, and they deserve a home on the Northern Great Plains in central Montana. Yeah, that's brilliant. Again and again, we see with rewilding projects that the local opposition at the beginning is often about identity. You know, people fear a change to their way of life, to their culture, to, to their identity. And, and, um, I guess a lot of it stems from kind of cowboy culture feeling under threat at the prospect of these landscapes being returned to, to wild herds of bison. But it's also about economics. And um, I think in, in, in many of the rewilding projects that I visited, local communities fear that their means of living will be undermined by a new model. So, so what, what are the economic opportunities for, for communities in and around the projects? Are you creating jobs? How are you convincing local communities they have a prosperous future in the context of a much wilder landscape? Yeah, I, I think you you characterize that well. And um, ranching is a difficult way to make a living, and it and um, it is a, a lifestyle and a way of making a living that people are rightfully very very proud of. Um, and there are a number of global threats or number the number of things that make that a really hard way to make a living. Um, and I think above all else. Um, our neighbors care about their communities and care about the health and the, the sort of vibrancy of their communities. And we do too. And so I think the, the thing that we stress is that we are buying our properties um, when they come for sale on the open market using a private property rights approach. And we are managing the land in a way that's different from our neighbors, um, but in a way that creates a lot of jobs are very similar to those um, of our neighbors and uses a lot of the, you know, community resources, supports a lot of community businesses that are, that our neighbors support as well. So we are buying a lot of pickup trucks. <laughs> we're working with a lot of fencing contractors. Um, and, you know, we're using the same tractors to reseed the native prairie. And so we really think about in the, while this project is enormous and the broader scheme of things, state of Montana is more than 90 million acres. Um, and we're talking about a, a, a small portion of central Montana. So agriculture will remain a dominant economic force. And we think that we can be additive over time. We can create um, new jobs around these, these ecosystem services, new jobs around tourism, 
new jobs around guiding, new jobs around hospitality, new jobs around ecological restoration activities. Um, and, you know, we have a, a staff of about 50 now, and half of our staff live in uh, Gateway Community or on our properties and um, and are, are part of these, the community. And we um, we intend to be part of the community for, for decades to come. So it's a lot about showing up and listening and learning and exchanging information and dispelling uh, myths and um, just putting one foot in front of the other and doing what we say we'll do year after year after year and building relationships. And I think um, I try to really take a really long view on that, but you know, with, with the underlying belief that American Prairie can be additive to this region, economically, culturally, socially additive to the region. And you're reaching out to broader society as well with with, with a number of different things, including that amazing visitor center that I read about in your latest newsletter. Tell me about that. Yeah. So we, um, in uh, almost exactly a year ago, actually opened our national discovery center in downtown Lewistown, Montana. We bought a 120 year old building and, um, beautiful stone building and renovated that. And in that facility now is a couple thousand square feet of exhibit space telling the story, the human and, um, wildlife story of the landscape. Uh, we have a theater, we have a conference and event center in a children's area, and then we have staff offices in this, this building as well. <clears throat> and what we had realized is while we were managing 400,000 acres and we had lots of opportunities for people to come and visit the prairie without a central brick and mortar location for people to come and interact with our staff to hold programming events, to share information. There are not that many people know about American Prairie. And so we really see this as an opportunity to create a space where if you're a visitor, you can come and you can buy a t-shirt, you can, um, you can get, you can talk to a person, you can get a map, you can learn about our campgrounds and our huts and uh, how to stay safe and have a good time out on American Prairie. Um, and if you're a collaborator, you can host a program in our beautiful conference and event pavilion. So this has been an excellent addition to American Prairie's um, sort of suite of offerings to the public. And we're, uh, we've gotten great feedback from our visitors and from the community and that we made this kind of an investment in, in the, the community of Lewistown. I think one of the most exciting trends in, in rewilding in America, species reintroductions, particularly bison reintroduction, is the involvement of Native American communities, as you said. It seems to me that America's Native American uh, communities are finding their voice. I was reading recently about plans to remove four hugely damaging and obstructive dams from the Klamath River, the biggest dam removal ever undertaken. It's on the Oregon and California border, and that's led by indigenous communities. I'd love to know more about how APR is working with Native American communities close to you, um, not just in terms of piecing together parcels of land that they control, that you control, but more proactively, for example, in respect of species reintroductions. Yeah, the indigenous communities in our region are absolute leaders in wildlife conservation, and we're really privileged to work alongside them. And we, you know, we always, um, we start with this recognition that the the lands that we now steward were originally cared for and used and called home by uh, the Gravant and the Blackfeet and the Assiniboine and the Sioux and the Crow and the Chippewa Cree and the Little Shell Chippewa. And um, those, um, 
indigenous communities um, have, you know, long ties to these to 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 the Great Plains, um, and so there are a number of opportunities for us to um, collaborate. And primarily, we do that in a couple of ways. One is through um, wildlife conservation. I, I I talked about bison and just that exchange of of animals. We will import animals from both Fort Peck and the Fort Belknap uh, tribes this coming year. Uh, we help one another in these handlings. We support. Um, one another in these in these bison transfers and the growth of our respective bison herds. Uh, the tribes have also, specifically the Aani and Dakota, uh, recently led a swift fox reintroduction project on tribal lands. The swift fox is a little fox about the size of a house cat. And it's um, had, while the populations thrive in other parts of the Great Plains, there were no swift fox in our region. Uh, they were uh, kind of an accidental victim of poisoning campaigns that were targeted at, at wolves and coyotes long ago. And so in collaboration with Smithsonian and other conservation organizations, the uh, Ani and Dakota community has now um, released uh, more than 50 swift fox, um, actually close to probably closer to 100 swift fox now on tribal lands. And um, they're, these animals are collared. And what we're seeing is they're going everywhere. You know, they're, they're denning, they're having kits on the, on the landscape, and um, they're successfully repopulating up this area. Similarly, the, um, the Ani Nakoda community has also worked on black-footed ferret reintroduction. The black-footed ferret is the um, is one of the most endangered mammals in North America, and of course they're entirely dependent on the prairie dog, which is a keystone species that has been greatly reduced in numbers. But um, again, that's a, a, a species where the, the the tribes have led have led that conservation effort. So wildlife conservation, we share many of the same goals for this fully functioning ecosystem. We also work with um, educational institutions, the tribal colleges. We work um, with the economic development agencies on programs to create expanded tourism opportunities to share um, that cultural heritage with the visitors who come to the region. And we also work with uh, members of the ranching community um, on Fort Belknap who are part of our Wild Sky Ranching program, which incentivizes wildlife-friendly ranching practices. And what about getting kids from inner cities, communities that are far away from you in Chicago or New York or the Big East Coast cities out into American Prairie Reserve? Is that happening? I mean, I, I think talking about the Native Native American communities near you, they, they have an intrinsic connection with and love for the nature around them that we've somehow lost in, in our society. And, and rebuilding that, I think, is going to be central to our survival as a civilization. And part of that is about getting families and especially kids out into nature, not necessarily just to learn, but just to have really positive, happy, awesome experiences. So to what extent are you able to do that? Yeah, so we have... Um is sort of starting more broadly, we operate now um, three backcountry huts and two campgrounds. And we have um, about 5,000 overnight visitor stays um, per year. So we have a number of these facilities are really popular. And we have a number of people from from Montana, but really from all over the country coming to to rent and stay in those facilities. So families, individuals, couples, um, 
friend groups all coming out and making American Prairie um, a part of the landscapes now that they they visit. Uh, on the educational front, we've actually stuck closer to home and targeted most of our educational opportunities at Montana kids um, and Montana students. And we we, as you've noted, we're we're not even that well known here in the state of Montana and the prairie is a new landscape to a lot of students, even even in Montana, even if it's in their backyard. And so this past year, we uh, ha- operated the first full year of a program called our American Prairie Field School, where we work with middle schools in the region to on a year-long prairie ecology curriculum, culminating in a three-day, two-night stay um, on American Prairie. And even for kids who live an hour away, waking up on the prairie and getting out your binoculars and sitting and watching a prairie dog town and watching burrowing owls on a prairie dog town or reassembling a bison skeleton, which our bison restoration manager um, had had stu- uh, one group of students do. You're learning about the intricacies of the prairie ecology in a different way um, than than you might even get just, just living there. So over time, we certainly want to open up American Prairie to to more educational groups, but the um, the the focus of our efforts have really been um, closer to home and making sure that um, students in Montana are, are appreciating the complexity and the importance of of the prairie. Allison, how big can this get? And in the sense that the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative that I hope to get on the podcast at some point is looking to create connectivity between. Uh, the natural environment, wild places of Yellowstone, all the way up to Yukon in Canada. To what extent can the 3.2 million acres of rewilded prairie grassland that you're pulling together connect outwards with other similar landscapes? Can you imagine a time when wildlife can move freely all the way to the West Coast or all the way up into Canada or all the way down into some of the long grass prairie of the Southeast even? I mean, how likely is that wider landscape connectivity uh, uh, potential? That's a great question. And we are very lucky here in Montana that we have complete ecosystems to our west, right? The, the greater Yellowstone and then the, the crown of the continent uh, ecosystem along the, the Rocky Mountains there. And so we're really focused, you know, even at 3.2 million acres, as you hinted at, we are cognizant of the island um, biogeography and that, you know, we, we need connectivity with other landscapes. And what's exciting is that in some ways we're seeing this already. Um, you're seeing wolves move out of Yellowstone to the north and the east, um, jumping on these um, island mountain ranges. You're seeing grizzly bears move off of the Rocky Mountain front, down the river systems into the Missouri River corridor and essentially onto our properties in the Missouri River breaks. Um, and, you know, grizzly bears are a prairie species and they we've pushed them into the mountains and there's increasing acceptance that um, there should be a place um, for grizzly bears um, in, in some of these prairie ecosystems. And so, um, you know, making sure that we are in our own operations with our own visitors, but also working with our neighbors that we are, doing everything we can to reduce human wildlife conflict is is a real focus of ours. It's a focus of our wild sky ranching program. It's a focus of uh, projects we conduct with with our neighbors because in the West, we have a lot of examples we can look at where these um, carnivores didn't exist and now they do and they are they exist in livestock heavy regions and through 
range riders through, um, you know, removal of carcass piles, putting away beehives, like all of these sort of, there are a number of tools that you can use to avoid those conflicts and minimize those conflicts and make sure that, um, the, you're not adversely impacting the economic operations of, of the agriculturalists on these landscapes. So a huge opportunity here to have connectivity, um, to, especially to these landscapes to the West of us. Yeah. Cause they say the three C's of rewilding are the cores, the carnivores and the corridors. And it sounds like you're doing all three. <laughs> but what, the cores, the carnivores and, and the, the corridors. And the corridors. I like that. I hadn't heard that before. But what is so extraordinary about the American Prairie Reserve is not just the scale of it, but the idea of putting a landscape back together better than it's been for centuries. Like we're not stopping bad stuff from happening. We're putting stuff back and putting it better than it's been since Europeans arrived in America. And more people should know about this project. I think it's completely awesome. People should travel there and, and spend time there. I certainly plan on doing that. And Alison, I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to speak to me. You are my hero and I am a fan and I would like to help you in any way that I can from sitting here in London. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your um, enthusiasm. I appreciate your willingness to share the story. And um, I personally just feel really privileged to be part of this project. I've been part of this project now for 15 years. And it's not at all me. It's a it's a huge team here of staff and board and supporters who have made American Prairie what it has uh, become over the last 21 years. And um, where uh, we also have uh, you know peers around the world who we collaborate with, who we share ideas with, who we visit and we f- learn from. And so I think the idea behind your podcast of highlighting these rewilding projects is just an excellent one and uh, again i'm honored to be your first guest well you're a rock star thank you so much allison thanks ben to follow news of the american prairie reserve and all the work being done by allison and her colleagues go to americanprairie.org sign up for the newsletters consider visiting this extraordinary landscape in northern Montana and spread the word among friends of yours in America or beyond about this extraordinary rewilding project. Thank you so much for listening to this, our first Rewilding the World podcast. If you've enjoyed it, I'd be so grateful if you'd follow the podcast on your preferred platform and if you'd share this among your friends and colleagues and especially those who are into the rewilding story. Next time, I'm going to be talking to my friend and my hero, Deli Salvedra. Delhi works with both Rewilding Europe and with Rewilding Spain and is leading an effort to create a million hectare wild landscape known as the Iberian Highlands, somewhere between Madrid and Barcelona. Once upon a time, wild horses, wild ox, deer, wild boar, eagles, vultures, even wolves and bears were found in this landscape. Delhi's working hard to restore these species and to piece together what remains of the wild places in this part of Spain and to build an economy based upon natural capital and nature tourism for the people that live there. Please join me next time on Rewilding the World when I'll be talking to Delhi Salvedra.